Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, this is Adam. This week on the Smart Home Show, Richard and I talk a little bit about our recent visit to the Cedia Expo, share a little bit about the show in general, and some of our personal highlights from our time there. Hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey Adam. Hey Richard, how are you? I am doing well. And uh, you and I were just in Denver for the Cedia Expo. And so now we're going to share some of our thoughts about the show and the vendors and products that we saw there. Yeah, I know. I feel like after going many years without seeing you, I've now seen you three times this year. How lucky am I? Like within two months. I know. It's kind of crazy. I know. I'm ready for this more on a regular basis. All right. We'll have to keep it up. So as usual, we start the show with a question. And so my question for Richard, this week we had the big iPhone and Apple Watch event. Anything that excited you and did you buy anything? The anything that excited me would probably be the double tap that the new watches can detect on your hand, not anything else, just the hand that is attached to the wrist that is holding the watch. And I thought that was pretty cool. This is obviously borrowed from technology that they're going to be putting into the Vision Pro. Obviously, it's a different kind of thing because it's detecting it based on the, your motion. Yeah, I think the only thing that's common is the gesture. Really, yeah. the, the technology is totally different. Yeah, but it's very smart for them to replicate that gesture across other devices and hopefully use it in the same way. And from what I could see, it seemed like they were doing that. Whatever the default action is on the thing that you're on right now, that's what this is going to do. So that's pretty cool. As far as did I buy anything? <sighs> wow. I'll tell you. Strap in. <laughs> today is iPhone order day. And I tried. I tried my best to order an iPhone. I'm an AT&T customer. So I generally go through the AT&T Next Up program where I can upgrade to the next phone if I want to early and trade in my old phone. I don't always do the trade-in because if the device format has changed significantly, I need to keep the old device so that I can use it as a tester for software. And this was one of the years where I wasn't going to trade it in. Nonetheless, still going through at and site, AT&T refuses to recognize the address where I need it shipped. <laughs> it is a valid address. I can go to usps.com, put the address in their zip code finder, and it reconciles the address. No problem. at and site will not accept it as a shipping address. I actually think AT&T has a thing where they don't want you to ship anywhere other than where your cell phone bill goes. 
So it might have had something to do with that because I remember having that issue back in the day when my upgrade was more tied to AT&T because I always wanted to send it to the office, but they have like this hard and fast rule. It has to go to your billing address. Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, that would make sense. It'd be nice if that's what the error said. It just said invalid street address. It's not an invalid street address. It's a valid street address. So there's a phone number on the website. I figure I'll call the website. I wait for 40-some minutes, and eventually, after listening to the same three minutes of hold music over and over and over again, talk to somebody who I can barely hear, and I'm having a hard time understanding, add on top of that that he's muffled as well. So low volume, muffled, hard to understand. And we start going through the conversation. And, and then he tells me that I need to... Get out of my account online because we can't have both of us in our account at once. Well, bull crap. That's just not how these systems work. So I've already lost confidence in this process. Then we start with the order. And he says, yes, he can help me. Before I do that, I have to read this thing. And he reads this thing that's a statement that he's required to read because lawyers. And it asks me a question. The statement is asking me if I'm okay if he uses my information to blah, 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 blah. And I said, I, I don't understand what you're asking. Like, what is it that I, I don't know how to answer that. He's like, it's not a question. I'm like, no, you just asked me a question. So he reads it again. I said, see, you're just asking me a question. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I didn't yell. I probably had frustration in my voice, but I didn't yell. I didn't curse. I was just not understanding what he wanted. Okay, so next up, I've this whole time been trying to go to the at t or to the Apple site. Can't, can't. My DNS can't reconcile it. So I can't get to Apple.com. Still, even now, from my home right now. So weird. Very weird. And then finally I decided, okay, well, I'll see if Twitter AT&T support can help. I don't use Twitter anymore. So finally get back on Twitter, dust off my DMs, go to AT&T, say, hey, this just happened. Can you help? Talk to somebody that takes, I swear it took an hour and a half to get as far as we did. And ultimately, they wanted me to provide my credit card information. Over Twitter. So I don't care that this is a DM. I'm not providing my payment information on Twitter. Oh, well, then I can call you. Uh, no, that's not really better. Why can't you direct me to an AT&T site where the order is set and then I can just confirm it or pay it? They couldn't do that. I'm like, okay, well, then we're done. This does not seem secure to me. I'm not completing the order. So at roughly 2.48 today, I gave up. And concluded, I'm just not getting one of these today. It's not happening. I have things I need to do. I can't deal with this anymore. So, yeah, I want the iPhone Pro. I'm giving up on the Mini, too. And I was going to get the Pro, but can't do it. How about you, Adam? Were you more <laughs> successful than me? Much. <laughs> I, I feel like if you were still on Twitter, we would have seen a lot of tweets from Angry Richard today. Oh, jeez. Well... My first piece of advice here is you just need to abandon the doing anything with AT&T at this point. I got away from that many years ago. 
after yeah. some frustration. You know, they're just not good at this on release day <laughs> related stuff. And so but the <clears throat> thing I will say is that their stock lasts longer. Like when nobody else could order the green phone or the blue phone or whatever the hotness was each year, AT&T always still had it available. Okay. Well then save that as a second option in the future. <laughs> But I've been on board for a long time with the iPhone upgrade program, which is basically where you more or less lease your phone. The very first year they introduced it, it was incredibly painful and my phone was super delayed and I was frustrated because the, they did the credit check process on iPhone ordering day, which was a big mistake. And they learned a lesson from that. And now... They do the credit check process. Even if you're already participating, they do that in advance. I think I did that on Wednesday, something like that. And then you also like pre-select the phone you're going to buy. So you have it basically like in your cart. You've already picked out all the things you're going to do. And then all you have to do is hit buy on pre-order day. That still is wrought with issues and errors. And like it probably took... It took me maybe 15, 20 minutes to get through. It took my wife the better part of an hour to get through. But she got through and we both got day one pickup in-store phones. That system too, to pick up in an Apple store, you know, you saw a little bit when you came and visited here, we've got an Apple store like a mile from our house. So the times I've been able to get that to work, that's a fantastic and super easy way to do that. We also have the unfortunate thing that on an iPhone delivery day, like we're at the end of the UPS route. So I've literally had times where like, I got to be somewhere Friday night and you know, UPS still hasn't come at like 6 PM. So generally having it delivered to the house is, is not ideal. I still don't know if I can ship it elsewhere. Cause I, you know, I've had that issue in the past that you talked about. So so yes, I did get a new, uh, I'm staying team big phone, new Pro Max. I went with blue. I also got a ridiculously large one because my 512 gigabyte is like three quarters full. So what? Yeah, I know. I have, I don't even, I was even trying to like dig into why, but yeah. So I have is it a, videos. Do you take a lot of video? It might be, it might be some video. It might be audio downloaded stuff. I don't know. But so I got a big boy. I also upgraded my watch. I was sort of torn. And if they would have done like it would have been an Insta buy for me if they did it in black or another color. And I thought, oh, great. They're doing titanium on the phones. You know, we're going to do another ultra uh, in another color. But I did it. And, you know, if it's not really worth the upgrade, I'll I'll return it. But for now, I, at least I sort of panic ordered one and also for day one delivery. So, yeah. For me, it just wasn't worth the upgrade on the watch. I mean, the gesture's cool, but that's the only thing that I would have cared about, really. And that's just not enough for me to get excited about. I just got this in April. I mean, so. Yeah, true. I can't go replacing it. The good thing would be that if I did replace it, Edward wouldn't know any better because it looks exactly the same. <laughs> I like I like the way you think. <laughs> now, so about the upgrade program through Apple, is it the same deal where you can replace it after a year when the new one comes out? 
or at the end of those two years, then you no longer qualify for an upgrade and you're just starting all over again? Is that kind of how that works? Right. So yeah, it's like a two-year cycle where you own it after two years or you can upgrade and keep paying after a year. So essentially you pay for half of a phone in the one year and then you get an, you turn it in, you get a new phone. Do you have the ability to buy it out from them if I think you if want you, to end up keeping it? I, I think if you were going to do that, you would just keep paying for that phone for another 12 months. Hmm. So. I might look into that when we're done. Yeah, I mean, I think the I'm other... done with the AT&T thing. The other option, if, you, if you're going to do it, too, is just to buy it outright. And if you do come up with one you don't want to keep, you just use it as a trade-in. And at any time, you can walk into an Apple store and say, I want to trade in this device and just get a gift card for it. So even if it's not like part of your buying cycle, I've done that to just get rid of a bunch of devices. We had a bunch of iPads laying around the house. You can just go in there and anything that's worth anything, they'll either recycle it for you or they'll give you money on a gift card and call it a day. Interesting. All right. Well, this is the segment where we talk about stuff not related to the smart home, and we did indeed. Thanks for bearing with us. If you have questions for us to open the show, you can submit them with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard or just send it to us at feedback at smarthome.fm. All right. So as you mentioned in the intro, we were just at Cedia in beautiful Denver, Colorado. I think it was a good show. I think enjoyed it. Enjoyed getting to see you and some of our friends as well. But I think, you know, before we dig into what we saw there and all that, we wanted to talk a little bit about what Cedia is. I don't know if we've actually talked about Cedia before on the show. Maybe we have in a past episode, but just give everybody kind of a general overview of what is this show? What is it all about? Yeah. So for starters, the Cedia Expo is a conference serving the pro installer market. So this is kind of a... I'd call it generally more on the high end and more of a professional kind of tier of home automation, home theater, performance audio, whole home automation and lighting, kind of that sort of category of of stuff. You know, in terms of what they offer in the show, it's a little bit different from most uh, trade shows as they also offer training and certification as part of it. So some of the industry professionals like our friend TJ that, you know, actually does this for a living, you know, they actually have the opportunity to get some training, get some certifications. And that training often, it can be like generic training, or it's also training held by vendors. The cool thing about the generic training, if you will, that's the wrong word for it, but I, I know what you mean, is that I believe Cedia offers that to its members at no cost. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of part of the deal. Yeah, I would say more industry training. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. Yeah, there we go. And then, you know, the part that we spent most of our time at was, you know, there's also an exhibition of vendors. So for the press or for people that work in this industry, it's a great opportunity to get to talk to a lot of different vendors, catch up with people they work with regularly, see what's new, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so CD itself once stood for Custom Electronics Design and Installation Association. There's a mouthful. Yeah. 
I guess once <laughs> did, you know, now it's just more of an acronym or it's just kind of a name now. Um, yeah, it's an acronym that, be- that became the name. Yeah. But it's a trade association uh, which serves integrators, suppliers, kind of the design and build professionals. They actually used to own the trade show, but they kind of sold off that part of it. So they no longer own or manage the trade show. It's now owned by a conference and hospitality company called Emerald. And it showed. And and it showed. But, I mean, Cedia is still there. Cedia has a presence there. And obviously, they're delivering some of the training and stuff like that. So it's not like they're divorced from this. But they no longer really control or they don't handle the logistics of making the conference happen anymore. And you're right. It does show it. There's a bit of a disconnect. I feel like they're not as organized. I feel like they're not supporting the various attendees as well as they could from the press side. They did virtually nothing for press. Actually, Cedia itself did more for press and getting press people together and getting information to them than the Cedia Expo operators did. Yeah. This was actually the first time I ever attended a show as press. You know, I usually go under my industry company credentials, but so I didn't know any better, but you know, you told me kind of how it used to be and and what had changed for sure. And I think we, you know, we got a a sense that the industry is changing a little bit. You know, there where it used to be just brands focused on this market, you know, we're seeing a lot more of the consumer brands there as well as well as a lot of convergence on, you know, these high-end systems supporting consumer products too, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit further later. And I think this convergence is something we've been talking about as a theme for years, but it was originally news, right? It was the news that, wow, look, here we're seeing, uh, let's use Nest as an example, being offered by as part of these packages or through these distributors. And and look, now Ring has a program for professionals and stuff like that. That was news at the time. Now, that's just how it works. Well, and I think that's just a much more realistic situation too. You know, I think my home's a perfect example. You know, we really didn't have anything in our home that touched this market really until the project we just did in the theater. And so, you know, what am I supposed to do? Throw out all my consumer devices and, you know, start fresh with a with a high-end system? You know, that would make no sense. So, and, you know, as we're looking for things to work with, you know, the you know, control system that we did put in, like, you want it to work with the things you already have in your house, too. So, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Amongst other things we did, we got to sit down and talk with uh, Mitch Klein, So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, we've had Mitch on the show before. Mitch is the head of the Z-Wave Alliance. And this year was kind of interesting for them. They didn't have an actual pavilion at the show this year, which was new. And I think they did this last year, too. And, you know, whether you consider this spin or... Whether you can look at this the way you want to, there's a lot of truth in it. When we talked about that, they mentioned, you know, all of the people who would normally have kiosks at our pavilion now have their own 
significant presence on the show floor themselves. So a lot of the value that the Z-Wave Alliance brought by creating a presence for an opportunity for exposure for these companies isn't really there anymore. So it makes a little bit less sense for them to have a booth now. Nonetheless, Z-Wave is going strong. And certainly, we still see a lot of stuff coming out in Z-Wave and people talking about it. Of course, the newer 800 chips are a lot more reliable than the old 700 and 500 chips. You know, we, we had the news a couple months ago that there's a new chip manufacturer in town now. And this is important because there used to only be one. If you wanted Z-Wave, you had to get your chip from one particular manufacturer. And that really means that it's going to be hard to get prices down in the long run. Right. And I think I think that's a reason why, you know, a lot of companies maybe shied away from it or even like by policy couldn't use Z-Wave because there was only a single source of components. And some big companies have rules about that. Um, I'll just yeah. say, you know, for us, that was one thing that always kind of bothered us about it. You know, when you have one company controlling the market, good luck negotiating, you know, because the price <laughs> is the price is the price. And they say, you don't like that price, you know, see you later. So I think having another manufacturer in the market is good for the growth of Z-Wave. And I think also important, this market, the Cedia market was always a place where Z-Wave was thriving. You know, these types of professionals and these types of products seem to take, you know, that well. Well, and part of the reason is because this market isn't afraid of having to have a hub, right? The automation in installed system is usually from some sort of controller system. So having to set something up separately other than the devices themselves was a no-brainer. For consumers, that's been a harder sell. And that's one of the reasons why these products like your own that are built on Wi-Fi and Bluetooth are more successful in the consumer space. Yeah, and I think maybe it was a miscalculation or a misconception held by consumers that, you know, ZUA was more technical or, you know, more complicated. Same kind of goes for Zigbee. And so that's why some consumers shied away for it, from it. And one reason why the pros were never scared of it, because they knew how to deal with it and, and the technical piece of it. Yeah. Now, another thing that is going well for them is this new long-range technology that's in their newer chips. And the long-range capability is quite impressive. It is not lit up on all of the hardware. It's available on newer hardware, but not all the manufacturers have lit it up. So it really depends on what the use case is and how each vendor wants to use it if they're going to use it in their products. But they're looking at ranges upwards of one and a half miles, which is just bonkers, two kilometers really, to be able to get signal that far. And why is that important? Well, let's say that you have a security system and your security system can now also wirelessly secure your outbuildings like 
a garage or a barn or a shed or something like that, a workshop, that anything else on your property. It could also support outdoor devices and sensors and things in a way that it never could before. Yeah. Pretty impressive. So in terms of, you know, the conference, why did we go? You know, and I think this is a show that both Richard and I have gone to off and on for years. But, you know, we think that, you know, it's really important to find out what's going on with the market. And there are things here that won't be at CES and, you know, kind of vice versa. This is really a, a distinct and unique market. And it's a good opportunity to talk with vendors. You know, you get to network with other people in the industry, catch up with industry friends and contacts, seek out new business opportunities. You know, some of what I was certainly doing, get to see new product in, in person. So, and I think for both of us, I had been to a couple smaller shows, but this was kind of our, both of our chance to kind of get back into trade shows because neither of us have done this um, since CES 2020. Yep. This is my first big adventure out into the scary post-COVID world. And I seem to have survived, so the test went well. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> listening to one of our other friends' shows, uh, maybe all didn't survive quite as well, but good to hear that, uh, that you didn't come back with the, uh, with the CDA flu or other things. But um, yeah, I think it was a great experience and uh, good to get back out there. So I think both of us said, you know, we're excited and hope to go back to CES this upcoming year, too. Yes, indeed. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors, and then we'll return with some of our favorite things that we saw at Cedia. Everyone says that starting a podcast is easy, but let me tell you, making a podcast is hard work. That's where today's sponsor, Lightning Pod, comes in. If you have a podcast or you want to start one, then you should check them out. They can help you with every step of the podcast production process. We've been working with Lightning Pod founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. Eric currently helps us with editing and copywriting, but he's also available to help your podcast with recording, monetization, website design, and more. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. All experience levels are welcome, so whether you're a veteran podcaster or a total newbie, you should check them out. That's lightningpod.fm. All right. So one of the things that I like to do, Adam, rather than just going through the things that were interesting, because I had a list of maybe 20 different noteworthy vendors, try and kind of rank them into superlatives. Like what was our favorite thing? What was the coolest thing? So I put together this list of things and it looks like we've both filled in something for each of these. So Which, let's just start. Yeah. What? I was going to say next time you know, we should decide these ahead of time so I can actually like take good notes and keep track better. <laughs> I was, you were much better prepared for this than I. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think we all have some interesting stuff to talk about. So let's just start with the actual favorite thing. What was your favorite product or announcement at the show? So, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I didn't see a lot of new products or things that I perceived were new just for the show. So the one that stuck out for me um, was something that you actually had hands on, which was a new iteration of Richard's favorite device, which is the, the <laughs> Lutron Pico remote. But they built a new version in, in paddle form factor. 
So yeah, yeah. So this was mine because you know I could actually see using this. You know, I'm having put in a bunch of their switches before and doing more with the paddle form factor instead of the kind of classic style. I was happy to see this. I was inspired enough to write about this over at the DMZ. It is available now, and it's only 20 bucks. You can buy it at, I believe, just online right now, and then it'll make its way into the big box stores and Amazon and stuff like that. But, yeah, this is a smart move. And I had a sample product that Lutron provided to me ahead of time under embargo so that I could actually feel it and test it out. And I think they nailed it. It feels good. It, it works well. It's a sturdy device. And I absolutely plan on buying a bunch of them because I just think it's a smart move on their part. But this wasn't my favorite. My favorite, however, was also a Lutron product. Lutron has all kinds of different product lines, not just lighting. And shading is one of their big ones. They do a lot in the shading space. They probably have the best roller shades that you can buy in the industry, according to them. That's uh, not my take on it, but they have a whole lot of options in terms of the product that's on the shade. And then they have different options for installation, whether it's battery operated or or wired. And one of the things that they showed was a new drapery system called the Savoya QS drapery system. Now, this isn't something you're going to buy at the hardware store and install it yourself. These are wired. It needs to be installed by a professional. But it looks like a drapery rod. There's no visible wires. There's no visible control thing hanging off the end. You would never know that this is anything but a plain old drapery rod. It has all the mechanisms inside and just looks like a normal drapery ride rod. Until it started moving by itself. Then you would know. Yeah, until it starts moving by itself. And it can move by itself in one of two ways. You have a controller for it that either gets triggered by buttons on the wall or your app or voice or what have you. Or you can tug on it one way or the other, and it triggers the mechanism to start opening or closing it. Oh, that's cool. So slick. Yeah. Really, really slick. They did an amazing job on this. I think this is expected to be out either late this year or early next year. Really nice product. Most of our window coverings in the house today are drapes, but I think if I was replacing them, I wouldn't put up automated drapes. I would probably do some sort of roller shade or something like that. But cool that it exists for sure. Yeah, very cool. Imagine what you could do with this in your home theater. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, let's talk about most innovative. I'll go first on this because mine was also a window covering. One of the most innovative, in fact, I think the most innovative thing that I saw at the show was the Hunter Douglas Aura Blinds. This is a blind system with integrated lights. 
So imagine that you have a sheer blind of some sort, like a roller blind, and you can sort of see light through it. It doesn't completely block out the light. But you don't always have the light that you want in your space, or you live in an area where you get a lot of gloomy days. Maybe you live on the, in the Pacific Northwest or in Alaska. Maybe you're affected by that. Maybe you have a seasonal affective disorder. I think I said that right. If this is interesting to you, what this product has is an integrated light behind the shear and then another reflective light blocking blind behind that. So you can either, either use this as a regular old shear or you can have the light blocking blind come down behind it at the same length and then you have this light between the two that basically bathes your room in whatever light you want. If you want warm white because it's evening, if you want cool light because it's day and you want something that's more like daylight, you can set that up any way that you want. This is something that is available now. They're rolling it out slowly in different areas. It does need to be professionally installed, but it's a really clever product. And, you know, as we saw it, those of us that were in the demo, we were all saying, Alaska, you got to get this up to Alaska. There's so many real practical uses for this in some areas where daylight is literally scarce. Right. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. And this, you guys must have stumbled on this after I left because I didn't, I didn't get to see these. I did. So I ran into our friends at Castor who got me an, an on-demand appointment to go see this demo. Ah, very good. So my pick for most innovative, one of the companies that was there was LG. And as LG does, they had all kinds of things and kind of their full gambit and line and kind of their signature demo in their booth was showing off their LG signature OLED M with zero connect. So I remember hearing about this in the past and maybe they introduced this first at CES, but obviously we weren't at CES this year, but what this is, is basically their top end OLED, but for this TV, literally all you have to do is provide power. All of the inputs for the TV are in a box that just needs to be somewhere within line of sight of the TV. So there's literally like a, a laser receptor that this box communicates with the TV from. And literally when I was showing it to another friend, he put his hand in front of it and you could see the interference on the TV. <laughs> so I thought this was a really cool idea. And what was also, obviously it's their top of the line. So it's already an expensive TV, but this technology was only a $500 adder, which really surprised me. And I was impressed with. So I think that, you know, a lot of innovation there and a lot of potential to be able to disconnect that, you know, where you're going to have your inputs and stuff. Because even me in my own house, like, 
there was not a run for an HDMI to my TV. And somebody, when we were here, commented, you know, look at that, you know, cable run there. And I was like, I don't, it doesn't bother me. But, you know, if it was your house, Richard, it would be a problem for sure. Yeah, that would drive me crazy probably. But this is a really clever solution. And it's not like you have to have this box right under it. You could have it off to the side of the room. And you could probably find a location in most rooms where you could put it so that there wouldn't ever be anything getting in the way of it, you know, against maybe the same wall that the TV is on, just somewhere over to the side. It doesn't have to be, well, let me say that differently. We saw it at what I think I would consider an 80, 75 or 80 degree angle off the center axis. So it did a pretty good job of picking it up from that odd location. Very cool. All right. Well, next up, what did we think had the most potential at the show? Do you want to go first on this one? Sure. So for me, I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. After Logitech got out of the remote game, there's been a hole in the market and and in my heart for, you know, a a new and better (laughs) remote. And obviously Logitech was on the I guess, low to mid side of this market. But, you know, we even talked about this, that, you know, we had to go with a full on control system for my home theater, specifically for the remote, because there aren't a lot of options out there. And so what really caught my eye is this company called Ava Remote, which is a new company, but not new to the remote space. And you can dig into all the drama related to that elsewhere. But what they were showing off was a remote that I think was probably one of the best blends I've seen to date of physical buttons with what I would call being a dynamic remote. So what I mean by that is that it had buttons on it that changed depending on what you're doing with it. So if you're going to the Apple TV input, For example, it's changing what buttons you're presented with. What also was cool about this remote is the remote itself is an Android client. So in some instances, like using Spotify or something like Sonos, um, where it made more sense to actually run the native Android app on the remote than it did to present a unique interface to it. So kind of a cool idea and and a lot of interesting things there. So it looked like there's some work to be done and some more integrations to be had. For example, you know, my new control system is nice, formerly Alon, and they don't have an integration with that yet. So, you know, I couldn't use that as my remote to that system. But yeah, I think there there was some definite potential here. Yeah, I was very impressed by this. I did not expect to be impressed by this because the first version of the Ava remote that came out was just the touchscreen, really just an Android screen at the top of a big, black, sleek candy bar. And I've never liked that kind of solution. I want physical buttons. And what was so clever about this solution, you know, you mentioned buttons. Yeah, there's some buttons on the side of the remote, but... Really, the buttons, the primary control buttons on this remote are an additional screen 
that is behind a 360 pivoting piece of glass that has a physical it's like 3D glass. Right. It has a bump in the middle so that you know where the middle is. The sides kind of taper in a little bit. So this one rocker feels like, you know, very obviously a bunch of different positions that you can press for stuff. But it's a screen, which is how it's all dynamic. It's so, so clever. Yeah, it still had the tactile nature of a button remote, but, you know, allowed you to have those that dynamic experience with that physical press feeling that yes, I actually just pressed it. And I know that I pressed the right one because my finger can feel where it is, which is so important. Yeah. They've done a really nice job with this. I kind of hope that this, this company is in a little bit of uh, legal risk right now. It was started by the same people who started and founded the Neo remote and that's the drama that they're dealing with because, uh, you know, it's pretty similar. So I'm not a lawyer, but hopefully they'll be able to weather through all this. How about yours? Yeah, I was interested and you may be surprised by this because I know we passed by and we both kind of like, eh, which was the GE Sync product line that is now owned by Savant. And G-Sync is a Bluetooth and Wi-Fi based product that you know, has kind of evolved over the years. I've mentioned that I don't like the form factor of their wall switches. I think they're confusing and ugly. They qualify as what the home tech guys would call a Gunther switch. And I just wouldn't want that kind of thing in my home. But they do have some interesting lighting products. And two that they were showing kind of quietly were prototypes for new products they intend to put out next year. And these are under cabinet lights. So they are looking at coming up with a modular system that would allow you to have flat bars of LED light that would be white tunable and those would be un you could install under your counter or under your cabinets rather shining light down on your countertops and it solves the problem that you have when you're trying to use like LED strips or something like that for under cabinet lighting which is you don't get the hot spots you don't see a line or you don't see the hot spots where the LEDs are and that's a really nice type of light for that kind of space. You, you don't have that serious reflection. And they also are working on a puck solution as well. So sometimes people like to have those kind of puck lights, and those two are going to be LED and based on this modular system where they can all be connected together under your cabinet. So I, I thought that was pretty clever. I like that they're thinking about different use cases for lighting in the home other than the usual strip light, color bulb, color outside strip light. You know, they, they do all of the usual stuff. This is a little bit more innovative. And I know that Sylvania was playing with this idea before they kind of dramatically scaled back the consumer color lighting options that they were doing. 
So I should wait for this for my uh, under cabinet problem lighting that I showed you. Well, you you should wait for this, and then you're going to need to wait for one more thing, which is they still don't have an API for their stuff. So if you get GE Sync lights, there is no way to tie them into HomeKit. Yeah. There are like two or three products from GE Sync that are HomeKit compatible, and the rest of it is not. Now, they have said that some stuff is coming out that's going to be Matter compatible, but they don't have an API. So you can't tie them in to, through HomeBridge, or you can't tie them into any sort of control system that you have. Since they're owned now by Savant, that's a new priority. And that's something that they're working on for next year. Okay, the wait continues. The wait does continue. All right. Next up, this one's kind of fun. What did you think was the coolest product that you saw? And mine is a hands-down vote for the C-Seed Outdoor Folding Television. I have never seen anything like this in my life. This looked like a big, huge LED matrix outdoor television like you might see, but it's on a pedestal and they press a button and the thing literally folds up like a fan would with a bunch of creases and then slides down into a base and either slides all the way down into the ground or then lays over on its side and gets covered up. This is intended to be for high, 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 high-end homes or for hospitality situations like a TV to watch the game while you're at the pool at the casino or something like that. And did you actually get to see the thing in action because I heard it was a, a bit of a unicorn to actually see it unfold because it only happened a couple times a day. Right. We missed when it was going to be happening. So we saw the video of it, but we were somewhere else when they were doing the folding and we missed the demonstration. I was very bummed because we waited for a while and then we found out that we were there too early. So I did want to see it, but it's it's still so cool. It's just bonkers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably what's possible now with kind of the tech that's in folding phones and that kind of stuff that you can do this. So I, I got to imagine, you know, this is obviously, I think a couple hundred thousand dollar device, but literally, I would assume. literally like the, the size of my, my movie theater screen. So pretty bonkers, but you got to imagine it'll come, it'll get cheaper and cheaper and more reliable now. But you know, this is where these cool things have start on the very, very highest end. Yeah. And, I, you know, you said the size of your screen. I think the 140-something screen was the small one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw a video of this on social media or something beforehand, and I didn't even realize they had it at the show. So I also didn't see it fold or, you know, I didn't even know it was there. So I missed this one. Oh, well. Okay. So what did you see that was cool? Um, for me, what was cool and I think a peek at, you know, what's coming down the line is obviously in the space we're in, when you want to do complicated automations, you know, usually you're going in and doing something sometimes akin to, you know, some light programming of, you know, if this, then that type stuff. And Josh AI 
um, which is a company that is kind of like a, a replacement for a, a vo- home voice system. They actually had a natural language automation system. So you could say, you know, when I give this command, I want this to happen and this to happen and set these lights to blue and to 50% and, you know, and, and, and. So, and I want to clarify that what you just said is what you would type or transcribe into the field for the automation. It wasn't that you had to pick things like you do with every other automation system. Right. No, you were just literally telling it, this is what I want to have happen. I think Richard and I both saw the cracks after that because this is a pretty early demo. And I think it could use a little bit more checking and you know testing if the things you're telling it to do are even valid commands. But for me... You know, this really showed the potential for something like this. And I hope, you know, others continue to uh, iterate and do more stuff like this, because I do think that automation in, in smart home is less accessible to normal people and having a voice interface to be able to do those kinds of things is a great way to get it in the hands of more people. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well. Let's move on to our next category, which is the most quirky. Adam, what was the most quirky thing you saw at the show? This one is actually both of our our choice. I also could have put this under cool, you know, a bunch of different places because I had heard rumors about this device and it was very neat to see it in person. So again, at the LG booth, which, you know, credit to LG, like they're willing to just kind of sometimes throw things against the wall and see what sticks. And this product is definitely one of those things. So <laughs> they, they have what is called the LG Stand By Me Go, um, which is kind of a, a weird name too. Um, yeah, gets the quirkiest name award too. Yes. It is literally a briefcase with a TV in it. Uh, do you remember the size of it? It's- it is a 27-inch screen. This is like so get smart, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk about products that you could take back to, you know, 1985 and show somebody and they would really know you were from the future because it's really cool. And it was a touch screen as well. So in addition to just being a TV, you could plop down and plug an Xbox into and take in your car or whatever. It also has some games on it. So you're you're definitely going to want some internet if you want to use the game function, but it could be used in a upright mode or even just a flat mode and you could play chess or checkers. So I thought that was really cool that, you know, they really thought about, all right, well, what else, you know, if this is a touchscreen, what else could we do with this? It had a built-in three hour battery life. So, you know, for me, obviously in a business mindset, You know, if you were going somewhere where you weren't necessarily going to have a projector or a way to, you know, show off presentations, um, this seems like a really good way to be able to plug something into your computer and have a bigger kind of monitor to show off, you know, presentations or demos or something like that. So I think it's an interesting concept. And being this weird, you'd think it'd be super expensive, but I think it was only about $1,000. So yeah, it was $1,200, if I remember correctly, which did not seem bad at all. I think that three-hour battery life is 
a bit of a limiter. I was surprised that it was so low, but you know, it's powering essentially a 27-inch touchscreen TV. So think about what kind of UPS would you need to have under your desk to keep a monitor alive for three hours. And oh, by the way, that's how much it's weighing too, right? Because your UPS is a heavy device. This had a big battery in it for those three hours. This was a 25-pound device. Yeah, fairly heavy too. Yeah. I don't think they had an answer for this too, but like, I don't think you'd want to like stick this in a check under an airplane no, or nor would they let you because the battery too. So, it, yeah. you know, kind of a weird device. I don't think you could bring it on a plane at all. Probably it's kind of large. So I don't know that it would, it would fit in an overhead compartment. They talked about the travel use case being more like camping and something like that, that that's definitely more of a glamping kind of situation there, but man, I glamp, but this is a step too far for me. (laughs) All right. Well, at these shows, and I talked about this before, we see a bunch of different demos. And so as far as my favorite demo, mine's kind of a cheat. So one of the things that happens at shows like this is that all the booze are trying to get your attention. And so one of the ways that they do that in both the audio space and the video space is to blare in amazing audio quality something that they think is going to catch people, like get their attention, make them wonder, oh, where is that playing? I want to go see that or I want to go listen to that or whatever else. Numerous vendors were playing a couple different classic demo cuts. And these are things that we had talked about when we were talking about your home theater. What are good demo movies? So we saw a bunch of stuff from A Star is Born. People were playing those songs from Lady Gaga. And we saw a bunch of cuts from The Greatest Showman. And I must have heard five different vendors around the floor playing Never Enough, which is this big, dramatic solo number from The Greatest Showman, just blaring as loud as it could go. And it it's one of those songs that if, if you saw the movie and you remember the moment, it's a pivotal mo- moment in the film, and it just kind of caught my attention every single time, and I had to go find it. <laughs> yeah. Funny story about one demo, though. I don't remember the, the vendor, and we won't shame them, but Richard and I were in, in a demo room that was definitely for an audio vendor and their clip was playing on a TV that had motion smoothing on. And I was just like, I don't care how good the audio is. Somebody needs to tell (laughs) them to turn the motion smoothing off because it's ruining the whole demo for me. That vendor also makes televisions too, which was even more egregious. They should know better. They should know better. Yes. All right. What was your favorite demo? So, you know, some of what we did here was, you know, had appointments to talk to different vendors and and understand more about their products. So uh, one of those that I spent a good amount of time with was the company Kaleidoscape. And I think we're going to talk about them a little bit more in our our question later. But so what they do is they provide kind of a high end video 
I want to say streaming, but it's not streaming because you download it. So it, it's a way to have a digital high-end video solution with full 4K, full Dolby Atmos, you know, surround sound movies. And so it was really interesting to learn more about their solution and how it works and kind of all the applications for it. But why I would put this in my favorite demo is I hadn't really thought about, you know, ways that they could make that experience even better. And, you know, given, you know, the title of our show and talking to them, he was like, oh, and we have smart home features. I was like, really? Okay. I didn't know anything about that. And one of the unique things they do is in their movies, they actually have a way to have automation triggers. So you can provide truly a home cinema-like experience where you can have like a pre-roll before your credits and a light trigger to dim the lights when the movie starts. And part of what they get from all the studios is when do the credits hit and they can automate on that trigger as well. Cool. One of the other cool things they have is on their remote, they have the idea of an intermission. So imagine you're watching whatever, pick your favorite three-hour epic movie. Um, you can literally hold an intermission, and when you hit that intermission button, you can have a lighting trigger or an automation trigger to your favorite automation system. It puts up your intermission on the screen. It raises the lights. You can have a bathroom break and come back hit play. So in terms of having a really immersive theater experience, I thought this was a really neat and one of those additional details. You know, it's a fairly expensive product, but one of the things I didn't know that they do is they have a program where if you own existing Blu-ray discs, you can actually buy those movies, for, you know, and there's a way to hook up a drive to their system, you can actually buy those movies at a discount. And so I was talking to them and I was saying, you should also do this for people that have a large digital collection. You know, there's, there's no way for them to really do like a movies anywhere type of experience because they also do have some cost in delivering the film, but it'd be great to be able to do that same sort of program when you have like I have a pretty large digital collection you know I've been doing the digital codes for movies for a long time even when I did own the discs um, mm -hmm. so that was you know interesting to know because I think for me one of my barriers for the system is like I don't want to have to buy all my movies again uh, right in a new format the other good thing you know um actually heard, you know, they actually admitted to this, which is, you know, they actually literally ceased to exist as a company for like a few days, you know, a couple of years ago. So that's always some, something people are worried about, you know, what happens if you go away. And the good news is if you buy movies from them and their hardware, there's no phoning home, there's no servers they have to maintain. So if you buy and download these films and you have the equipment, it will continue to work even if the company ceases to exist. So that's nice. Yeah. So, you know, if you do make that investment, you don't have to worry about that. So I did talk to them a little bit about doing a review unit and, and getting that into uh, test in my theater. So fingers crossed, we make that happen. And uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more in a future episode. Oh, you are, you're going to get that taste and then you're going to want one. <laughs> Yeah, we'll I see. I know it. 
I'll just settle for borrowing one for now. I think the thing that really sets this apart as far as videos, you know, you talked about the automation. I didn't even know it could do that. That's really cool. But otherwise, why would you get Kaleidoscape? Kaleidoscape used to be this idea where you could technically, legally rip your content onto their box. Well, <laughs> that's why they ceased to exist for a while because that wasn't considered so legal. And so they have a new model now, and the new model is through these purchases, but you're still getting the full quality. That's why you care about their video and their movies, because if you rip a 4K disc that you own, those movies are like 50 gig. If you stream something or if you buy a copy of that movie from Apple or Amazon, that's like five gig. Right. Yeah, we talked about <laughs> that a little bit in the last show, the quality disparity of streaming a video versus a 4K disc. And the other thing that they explained to me is that, you know, so you think, okay, a 4K Blu-ray, you're getting the full quality of the disc. Depending on the size of the movie and the assets, sometimes you're not because right. they're having to compress it. Yeah, because if they have to fit it on one disc, which most people are going to want to do, and they have extras and they have, you know, this, that they got multiple language tracks like they may have to compress a longer movie into a smaller format versus if yep. you download it from them, you're going to get the full top end format no matter what. Yeah. Good point. All right. Well, from those cool things, let's uh, talk about what was your biggest disappointment at the show? So for me, and this will go into my next category too, I was disappointed to see not a lot new in the smart home space. You know, we can talk about this more in a broader discussion later, but given everything going on with matter it feels a little bit like we're in a holding pattern. And so I didn't see a lot of new sexy devices in the space. You know, we mentioned like a few new products, but there really wasn't a lot announced here. And I just didn't see anything really eye-catching from, you know, anybody in the smart home space here. So that was a bummer to me. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty true of the industry right now. For me, I know we talked about the Josh AI stuff before. Their demo for me was my biggest disappointment. It's the only demo that I really had to wait any significant amount of time to get into. And then when I did, it was a cramped, crowded, hot space where I was standing next to people I didn't know, like right next to them. And that was freaking me out. And I couldn't hear Alex talking at the front of the room, Alex, the owner of the company. And it was a demo of everything that they were showing at the show, which included that natural language scene building and automation. And that's cool. That was cool. But the rest of it was basically them showing their controller, which is a new for them, but nothing new in the industry, right? Oh yeah, now we can actually control stuff around your home, not just be the voice interface. So I had, I don't know, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was just not as jazzed about this demo, partly because of the content, but also just because the logistics of it were awful. Yeah, 
understandable. And then finally, we are going to end with our biggest surprise. And my biggest surprise, and I'm still marveling over this one. You know, we talk about how different companies need to be able to adapt consumer products because that's what folks have in their home already. But the far end of the spectrum disparity of this still kind of baffles me a little bit. We saw a demo from Crestron that included their integrated control of your Hue light bulbs. And I still just kind of giggle inside a little bit when I say that. Like, I can't believe that they're so compatible with consumer products now that, yeah, and we'll control your Hue lights too. Yeah. That just blew my mind. Yeah, I think this was sort of the ultimate example of that, you know, a very high-end system. And yeah, we'll work with whatever you got. How about you? And you said, you know, this might be similar to the last one. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say two things. So I was uh, I was surprised I didn't walk away uh, with more things pulling on my wallet. Obviously, given the, <laughs> the home theater, uh, maybe Kaleidoscape aside, there wasn't too much that I was like, oh, I need that now, you know, or whatever. So I guess one... I guess I'm satisfied with what I have, but this also kind of fits in with my other answer, which is that not a lot has changed. So the last time I think both of us were at the show was 2019 and I just didn't see anything super compelling or new. And I guess COVID probably has a lot to do with that. You know, this industry was probably hit pretty hard and, you know, that, that stifled things a little bit, but, you know, given it's been four years, I would have expected a lot more new stuff and it, it really just seemed very small iterative changes. And, and, you know, maybe that's true about the, the industry overall. I tend to think that this space moves more slowly than the consumer space does. And I think that makes sense when you're, in a professional installer market, you want to make sure that you're offering your customers the true and tried stuff. It is always going to work. And, you know, we're kind of road warriors as we go out and try all of this consumer grade stuff as soon as it comes out. The cool new thing, I don't think integrators want to deal with the cool new thing. Right. Yeah. They want something proven, tested, you know, and uh, something they know that is going to be around for a while from companies that are going to be able to support them for a while. Yep. Exactly. All right. So that kind of wraps up our summary from the show, but we do have uh, some questions and comments from listeners. Thanks for sending those in. This one came from Sean at our email address at smarthome.fm. That's feedback at smarthome.fm. He says, thank you for sharing your progress on your home theater. In the last episode, you'd mentioned Apple not supporting lossless audio on the Apple TV. Hopefully, with Apple's focus on lossless audio, we will see a change in the future. But for your more audio-intensive movies, I wanted to see if you have checked out Kaleidoscape. They allow you to download the full movie file to get the same experience as using the 4K Blu-ray disc. The unfortunate part is Kaleidoscape does not make much money on the movies, so the hardware is on the pricey side, and 
you have no option to use your own storage. Yeah. As previously mentioned, I totally have checked out Escape. <laughs> and yeah, it is on the pricier side. Uh, nowhere near as pricey as that company a couple years ago that allowed you to stream day and date movies. That was for the people who have the folding outdoor TVs. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say this is Kaleidoscape is still, you know, reasonable. And some of their solutions are actually for, you know, one of the examples they told me about is for like cruise ship type stuff. So they're actually the server that is hosting movies in high-end hotels and, you know, maritime situations. So that made sense to me where you you actually would want to download those movies because you're out at sea and you have no way to stream things. So I thought that was interesting. But, you know, for your, I guess, whole home theater, you know, I think it is a pretty interesting option. And, and this listener is right. You do have to use their storage, which is unfortunate because, you know, in, in my case, I have a, a NAS on the network, but I can understand where they're coming from. And uh, essentially, you know, given their deals with the studios and things like that, I'm sure that's why that is, is because if the, if you were allowed to use your own storage, then it would be a lot easier for people to find a way to free those movies from that ecosystem and, and let them fly uh, free on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then we also got this feedback from Lewis who reached out to me through LinkedIn, which gave us the ability to kind of have a little bit of uh, real-time discussion about this. Lewis mentioned that by using the Infuse app on his Apple TV, he's able to get Dolby Atmos playback on his TV using Infuse's HD audio feature, which is a pro paid feature that you can get with a $10 a year subscription, which is kind of nothing. And he said that uh, that works for him. Well, I used to use Infuse, so I figured, all right, well, let's test this out. So I re-upped my subscription, which I hadn't been using for a while, and gave it a try, and it didn't work. So we both started doing a little bit of research to try and figure out what was going on. And it turned out that his content that he has is already encoded with Dolby Digital Plus audio. So it's the audio type that the Apple TV can play. It is somewhat lossy. And so it was able to play it in Atmos. Whereas my content for my discs has the original true HD audio tracks still on it, and the Apple TV still is just not going to be able to play that. So that was disappointing, but I did learn that I can get the 7.1 audio through their true HD audio feature. So that's kind of cool. But uh, yeah, appreciate that feedback as well, or that uh, suggestion from Lewis. Or you can just be like me and buy an NVIDIA Shield for this application. Yeah, I know. I know. That's less less exciting. All right. Well, if you have a smart home question, you can send it to us. Uh, we're just going to go with our, our email address at feedback at smarthome.fm. But we, we're talking about maybe uh, consolidating ways to get feedback. But we'll go with the email address for now since social media is kind of a mess these days. 
That sounds good. All right, well, let's get out of here. Before we do, I did want to thank our contacts over at Caster PR. And when we go to these shows, we have to reach out to a bunch of vendors, and it really does help when we have some good PR folks that we can work with to get some appointments with folks, to be able to sit down for meetings and get access to demos. So Special thanks to Kim and everybody on the team who helped make that possible for us with the vendors that they support. And uh, before we go, Adam, how can people find you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on the various social networks at Adam Justice on Twitter. I'm on, you search for my name on Mastodon, Threads, you know, all those things. Find the company at ConnectSense.com, everything we do in the smart home space. How about you, Richard? You can find me on Mastodon as Richard Gunther. I think I'm still the only one out there. And I am on Instagram. I think I'm Richard W. Gunther on Instagram. I really do need to check that at some point to make sure. I know I'm not Richard Gunther there, unfortunately. And, of course, you can check out our other stuff over at thedigitalmediazone.com. Now, The Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, which is a collection of tech-focused podcasts that includes the Home Tech Podcast, the Spoon Podcast, Home On, and smarthome.fm is our home where you can go find our show notes and details about each episode. And, you know, we talked in the last episode about a list of all the equipment in Adam's Theater. That is all up there right now if you want to go Check that out, too, to find out what, you know, we really need to figure out affiliate links or something. That's just a – we are just wasting an opportunity there, Adam. But if you'd like to send us feedback or get in touch with us by email, you can get to us at feedback at smarthome.fm. Find us everywhere you find podcasts and do us a favor, leave a rating and review, but more importantly, subscribe and tell friends about the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.